The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. So we started a number of weeks ago looking together at some experiences from David's life. As we look to God's Word to see what we can learn from His Word, what we can learn from David and his life in times of, of deep sorrow and times of deep sadness. What we can learn about God and how these truths can sustain us. Just want to remind you the previous weeks. We began by looking at this truth that past graces frame present distresses. Last week we, we saw in David's life how prayer brings peace in the middle of turmoil. As David prays, he prays to God about his circumstances. He prays to God about his enemies. God begins to work in and through that prayer to bring peace and that he lays down in peace. And then this morning we will close out with this truth that the gospel works to bring joy. The gospel works to bring joy. And in a way, we have saved the most important for last. Because the gospel really is everything. The gospel is everything. I hope that, that you understand that the gospel is not a one-time thing. The gospel is not a one-time action. The gospel is not just a belief. The gospel is not something that you do. The gospel is not walking an aisle and saying a prayer. The gospel is not something that you believe in order to be saved and then you move on from it. But the reality is that the gospel is active and it is working and it works in us every day to produce things inside of us and one of the things that it works to produce in us is joy and that's what we see from this text in Psalm 16 and it is the gospel's power to work in our lives to bring joy in the midst of sorrow to bring Hope and joy and contentedness in the, in the midst of pain and difficulty and anxiety and depression that sustains us and moves us through. Part of, of Amy's testimony this morning is that when she was saved at 16, she was dealing with deep anxiety. And it was in that that God stepped in and, and saved her. And how fitting it is of all the Sundays for her to be baptized and to publicly proclaim that faith. It comes today as we see the gospel working to bring joy in the life of David. Now, you may ask... How is it that we are talking about the gospel in the life of David? Because the gospel had not re been revealed in David's time. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us that it was hidden in the Old Testament. So how is it that we can talk about the gospel producing joy in David's life when Jesus has not come yet in the form of a baby. Jesus has not lived a perfect life. Jesus has not suffered unto death. Jesus has not been buried and has been risen from the dead yet. These are, are the core truths of the, the gospel, that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, unable to save ourselves. And so God, in His grace, has provided His Son so that by faith we may be saved and justified before Him. How can we say that the gospel is working in David to produce joy when the gospel hasn't even been revealed yet? The reality is, is that this 
text in Psalm 16 is about the gospel. This psalm is a messianic, prophetic psalm. It is an Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah that God uses David to bring. That is historically been the main thrust of, of this psalm, that this is this, is this messianic prophecy. And, and so much so, it's, it's interesting. There are some who will say that Psalm 16 does not refer to David at all, the, the whole thing, but instead it all refers to Jesus. That cannot be the case if you look closely at this psalm. But what you see in this psalm is David in the midst of sorrow, David in the midst of of anguish, proclaim the truths of the gospel, even though they were hidden fully to him. By the Holy Spirit's illumination, David begins to see and understand that there is something that's going to happen, that God is going to use a chosen one who will see no corruption. And God uses this in the heart of David. And while it was veiled and hidden in its, its complete form, it is not for us. And so we can look back at Psalm 16 and see how the gospel is working. Where is this in this psalm that we see this? It is verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is one of the main prophetic messianic psalms. So much so that this surely was one of the texts that Jesus used. We don't know exactly, but it says in Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So as Jesus is walking on the way to Emmaus with these two disciples, he begins to unpack Old Testament prophecies and to show how these prophecies were there about him. And he's the fulfillment of them. That he is the Holy One who would not see corruption. Now, why would we believe that this is one of the texts that Jesus used? Because this is the text that Peter used at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Starting in verse 25. Peter, preaching to the crowd, says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord Always before me, he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. It's this text that Peter uses to preach the gospel at the day of Pentecost to the Jews who have traveled from all over the world to come there and worship. It is this text that Paul uses in his sermon in Antioch in Acts 13. Therefore he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was laid with his fathers and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. This text, this verse, this part of this psalm is about the gospel. And while it was veiled and it was hidden full, you know, in, it, in its full totality, I believe David had some serious understanding of the gospel that would come through the Holy Spirit's inspiration. But he doesn't know it. He can't see it fully the way that we can. But this psalm is about how the gospel works in our troubles and how the gospel works to bring us Joy. We're going to see this in four ways. 
in this text. I'm going to give them to you up front. You know where we're going. Number one, the gospel adjusts our vision. That's verses 2, 3, and 4. Number two, the gospel is applied in trust. That is verses 5 and 6. Number three, the gospel arrives at worship and joy. That's 7, 8, and 9. And then fourthly, the gospel assures our future. That's verses 10 and 11. If you didn't get those, we'll go back over them. But if you would, look with me. Psalm 16, starting in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David is in trouble. We know this from how he begins. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, we do not have any evidence of what this trouble is in David's life. It is speculation to say. One thing is true about David's life is that it is a, is, is a life marked by some troubles. We don't know what this is, but most believe that this is probably David as he is fleeing Saul. And Saul's attempts to kill him and able to in order to hold on to his, his throne. And so David comes to God. And he cries out, Preserve me, save me, keep me, O God. For in you I take refuge. It's to you I run. And so then, David in the midst of these troubles has his vision adjusted. This is what the gospel does. It adjusts our vision. And he turns and he looks to God. Not to his troubles, not to his circumstances, but to God. And we see that in verse 2. And I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. God, David turns and addresses God, and in addressing God, he uses two different names for God. Hopefully you notice that there in your Bible. You see this word Lord used twice, and it is two different words. It's two different names that David uses for God. You see that in an all-capital L-O-R-D, Lord, and a capital L, lowercase, Lord. 
Two different names here. The first one is David saying, I say to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Now when you see all capitalized Lord, that is Jehovah. That is Yahweh. That is the covenant name of God that was given to Moses as he stood before a burning bush that was not consumed. So God comes and speaks to Moses. Moses, you will go and you will tell Pharaoh, you will let my people go and all of the people of Israel are going to follow you. And, And Moses, obviously stunned at this bush, Stunned at this calling that he's just received, confused, unsure, says, yeah, that's funny, but who am I going to say has sent me? In whose name do I, I come? You want me to go and tell Pharaoh, hey, a burning bush told me to let you go? And God says, you tell him that I am, that I am. And in that moment, God reveals... His covenant name. His covenant name. It historically is translated Jehovah. It was so highly revered. It wasn't spoken in Jewish cultures. In early Hebrew manuscripts, there are no vowels used. In Hebrews, there are no vowels the way we know. It's just pointing all the little things underneath it. But in early, there were no vowels at all, and so it was simply the tetragrammaton. It's just the consonants. And we've come to know that name as Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So when David says, I say to the Lord... And he uses this name Yahweh. It carries with it an understanding that this is the God of covenant promises. That this is the God who who keeps his word to his people. That this is the strong and powerful God. That this is the personal God. A God who has gotten personal with his People to say, I am is sending you. That's my name. My name is I am that I am. And I am strong and I am able. And I will free you from the hand of Pharaoh. And I will keep my covenant that I gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will do what I have promised to do. I am your God. You are my people. This is what Yahweh means. So David says, I say to this God that you are my Lord. This is not the word Yehovah or Yahweh. Instead, this is Elohim. And this carries with it an understanding of your sovereign or your master, one who has control over you, one who rules over you, the one to whom you submit. And so David says, I say to the covenant, personal, powerful God, you are my master. You are my sovereign. You are my Lord. And that I have absolutely nothing good apart from you. David's eyes are turned not to his circumstances, but they're turned on to the God of his circumstances. The strong and powerful covenant-keeping personal God who rules his life and gives him all good things. This means that God is the source of all good things. David realizes this. In this moment of trouble, David realizes that it is God who is the source of all good things. 
that it is not his circumstances, whatever they may have been. It is not his feelings. It is not his emotions. It is not others. It is not his abilities. It is God who is the source of all good things. I am proud to be an American. We just celebrated the birth of our um, great country. And we have driven into us that we are able in this country because of the freedoms that are given us, we are able to pursue life and liberty and happiness. And we are are taught, hopefully you are, and we teach our children, hopefully you teach them, that in this country, if you work hard enough and you live well enough and not make stupid decisions, that you can create for yourselves a life of good things. And that is true. I believe that. But may we never fool ourselves into thinking that that comes ultimately from us. It is God who is the giver of all good things. And it is the gospel that works in us to help us see this and to live in this reality. Without the gospel, you don't understand that. Without the gospel, you never see that. Because without the gospel, you are lost in your sin. Your greatest need is not good things. The greatest need for this country is not affordable health care. The greatest need for this country is not better housing. The greatest need for this country and for every country is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that opens our eyes to see that all good things come from Him. And when we see that, we are no longer driven simply by our circumstances. Because we have a God who is personal and powerful and promise-keeping, who presides as the Lord of our lives. That's what the gospel shows us. That's how the gospel adjusts our vision to look to God and to see in Him the powerful, personal, promise-keeping God who is now presiding as the Lord of our lives. David realizes that if he doesn't have God, even the best things in his life are worthless. The same is true for us. His vision is adjusted and it's adjusted to God. But then his vision is also adjusted to others. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. For me, I read this and I thought, this is just weird. It's like it doesn't seem to fit. Anybody else feel that way? But as I, I thought about it, I said, you know, look at what David's doing. David's, he's looking to God. He's saying to God, God, you are my Lord. You're my ruler. I have no good apart from you. And then he looks at the saints in the land. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And, and I remember I'm thinking, shouldn't your delight be in the Lord? What is this? But here's what happens. His eyes now are not just on his circumstances. They're not just on God, although they got to go there first. But now his eyes are on these other believers, others who seek after righteousness, others who seek to honor God and to live for God. And David is encouraged by them. His heart is encouraged by them. That's what he says when he says, in whom... Is all my delight. What he's saying is, my heart is encouraged by these other saints in the land and the way they love you and the way they live for you. They are an encouragement to me. Do you know who these people are today? This is the church. 
This is the church. These people today would be the church. And so it's us in the middle of circumstances that are difficult, circumstances that produce anxiety, circumstances that produce a troubled spirit. We see in the scriptures, we first, we have our, our vision adjusted, not just to our circumstances, but we look up to God and we see him as the giver of all good things. And then we look out to other believers in the church and we see in them living for the goodness of God. And in that we are encouraged. Our soul is encouraged. Here's what this means. It means that those who love God will love the company of those who also love him. In our times of distress, the gospel should work in us to drive us to be with the people of God and to find encouragement there. As the gospel works in us, it it calls us together with the people of God. And among the people of God, we see the gospel lived out in the lives of others. And our hearts are encouraged. But it seems to me as a, a pastor, what I've noticed is that when times are difficult, or when we're in the middle of depression or anxiety or suffering, so often, we stay home. It's easier just to stay home. It's easier not to go. Because we say, well, I don't want to go. and I'm not in the mood to put on the fake smile and do the church thing. And so we stay home. And we stay in our darkness. When the opposite should be the case, we should long to be with the people of God because when we are here, our hearts are encouraged, our souls are encouraged. Listen, if you're in a time of, of struggle or when you get to that, get up and go and come be with the people of God. Now, people of God, you, do you know what that means? That means we need to live for the goodness of God. And we need to have the gospel lived out in our lives. We just need to, to ooze it. So when people come in here and they, they see our gathering together, what they see is the gospel on display among us so that their hearts are encouraged. David's vision is adjusted. It's adjusted to God. It's adjusted to these other believers. And then he looks to the world. And he does not envy what he sees. Verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on their on my lips. So what David is saying, God, I look to you and I see in you I have all good things. I look to believers and I see in them good things and my heart is overjoyed. And then I look to the world and I do not want that. I don't want that. I don't want any part of that. Their sorrows are multiplying. Mine are diminishing. I'm not taking a part in that. I'm not even putting their names on my lips. David finds no joy in the world or the ways of the world. David finds his joy in God and God's people. Church, that is not possible without the gospel. If you don't have the gospel, you will find joy in the things of the world. You cannot find joy in the things of God. You cannot find joy in the people of God. You will find joy in the world. And the joy that you find there will not last. 
It is temporary. It is driven by circumstances. And your sorrows will increase. But man, when things aren't going the way I want them to go, and I'm in difficulty, I look at the world and see, man, look at all they got. And if we're not careful, we start finding joy in the things of the world. Oh, if, man, if I just had a, a home like that, if I had a job like that, if I had the ability to do those things, how much easier my life would be, how much more joyful my life would be. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. But if we look to the world and find joy, our sorrows will multiply. But if our vision is adjusted, if the gospel works to adjust our vision and we look to God, the promise-keeping ruler of our lives, and we look to the believers and our hearts are encouraged, then we will look to the world and we will not envy. The gospel works to adjust our vision. Secondly, we see that the gospel is applied in trust. Look at verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David proclaims that the Lord is my chosen portion. My chosen portion. This word portion can have two meanings. One is that of a portion in the land or an inheritance. You see that word used that way. My portion as a part of the land or the inheritance. It's this promised land talking. The second way that it can be understand, understood is that of daily provisions. That when we say portion, we mean just the daily needs of my life. Now, since this word portion, the Lord is my chosen portion, is linked together with cup and inheritance is mentioned in verse 6. It seems pretty clearly that what David is saying here is that, God, I am looking to you, and I understand that you provide my daily provisions, my daily needs. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. That God, I trust you to provide for my every need. Here's, here's what this is in New Testament talk. Give us this day our daily bread. That God, you will provide every need that I have. And I trust you to do it. God, you are my chosen portion and my cup. And even if I don't get everything I think I need, or even if I don't get everything I think I deserve, God, if I have you, it's enough because you're my chosen portion in my cup. When I got you, I've got everything, but I'm trusting you to provide everything that I, that I need. See, this is in the middle of a sorrow of great need, right? Preserve me, oh God. But the gospel is working to say, I'm trusting you. The gospel applied in our lives is a daily trust in God's provision. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You hold my lot. What is that? That is general life circumstances. Your lot in life, your, your, the circumstances of your life. God, you hold, you are sovereign, you are ruler. You are the one who dictates the circumstances of my life. This is a confession that it is God who holds us secure in our life and all of its circumstances. 
Look at the trust. Preserve me, O oh God. I'm looking to you, looking to others. I'm finding joy. I'm looking to the world saying, I don't want any of that because, God, you are the one who provides. And I'm trusting that. I'm trusting that. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I mean, look at the trust and the contentment in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of sorrow, to say, God, I trust that the lines of my life, the boundaries of my life have fallen. They have fallen in pleasant places. David's not in a pleasant place, is he? I mean, that's easy to say when he's living in the palace and he's the king of Israel. But he's not there. He's in difficulty, but yet the the gospel is working to build a trust in him that says, in suffering, in difficulty, in depression, in anxiety, I trust that the lines of my life, the boundaries of my life, where I will go, what I will do, they have fallen in pleasant places and I have a beautiful inheritance. Because listen, if these circumstances are from God, if they are circumstances that God has given me, then they are for my good. This is the kind of trust that the gospel produces. The gospel works in us to cause us to cheerfully submit to the circumstances that God has given us. This is Romans 8, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His Purposes. Now, I want you to notice that it is not the circumstances that are good. The circumstances may not be good. But we know that these circumstances are from God and that He is good. And since He is good, He is working these circumstances for our good. We can't read Psalm 16. We can't read Romans 8 and come away from that and believe that if we trust the gospel, if we believe in the gospel, if we are saved, then our lives will be lives marked by good circumstances. There's a lot of people who preach that. Those are people who want your money. But what we can say is that even if my life is marked by difficulty and sorrow and suffering. I can trust that God is good and He's using this for my good. The gospel is applied in trust. It builds a trust in us. A reliance on the sovereignty and the goodness of God. The gospel works to adjust our vision The gospel works to be applied in trust. And then thirdly, we see that the gospel arrives at worship and joy. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives counsel to me. In the night also my heart instructs me. Verse 7. I bless the Lord. Do you know what that is? That's worship. I bless the Lord. That's I worship the Lord. I proclaim goodness unto the Lord. I bless the Lord. This is private worship. I bless the Lord who gives counsel to me. In worship, we come to the Word of God and we receive from the Word of God counsel. That's what David's proclaiming here. I worship God as I receive counsel from God. Now, we have talked about the need to destigmatize counseling. The need to, to say that if you need help in the form of a counselor or a therapist, then you should go and seek that help and not be ashamed of it. And counseling can be very good. 
But counseling has its limitations. There are some limitations. There are the limitations of the counselor. After all, they are sinful, flawed humans. I know a few of them. They have limitations. They have limitations in their abilities. They have limitations in their knowledge. They also have limitations in their time. In that you don't get them whenever you want them. You get them in an office, during office hours, at a scheduled appointment. It is not so with God. He is always available. He has no limitations. There are no limitations in ability. There is no limitation in power. There is no limitation in knowledge. And he is always available. So yes, if you need a counselor, please don't feel ashamed by that. And may we never make people feel that way. May we encourage that. But more than that, seek God in worship, in private worship, and receive from Him counsel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, David says. And then look at this next phrase. In the night also my heart instructs me. And I read that and I went, now wait a minute. I seek the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart instructs me. And I thought, I thought the Lord's given the instruction here. I thought the Lord's the counselor. What do you mean your heart instructs you? But then I got to thinking, now wait a minute. This is David. This is Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I will not sin against you. So when David says, in the night, my heart instructs me, what he's saying is, I have hidden the word of God in my heart so that at the night, my heart instructs me, what comes out of me is the word of God. I have come to God in worship. I have come to God in his word. I've received from him counsel. I've stored it in my heart. And now at night, my heart instructs me. It's the word of God that is his instruction. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. What is this? This is worship. I've set him before me. I've set him before my eyes. I've set him before my ways. I've set him before everything. I've set him above everything. I have set the Lord always before me. I'm thinking of Him. I'm dwelling on His Word. I'm worshiping Him. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. What is that? The right hand is power. What David's saying is He is my power. He is my strength. I will not be shaken. I know that I dwell securely because the Lord is always before me. And the result is joy. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Do you see that it is no longer his circumstances that are dictating his joy? It is the gospel that works in us to change where we're looking. To trust in his goodness. To worship him in truth. To store that truth in our hearts. That causes our hearts to be glad. And our lives to be marked by security and joy. You talk about a different kind of life. That in the midst of trouble, in the midst of anguish, in the midst of heartache, you have a a life marked by worship and joy. That's what the gospel produces in us. Worship and joy. I preached Cruz's funeral last week. 
talked about David, son of he and Bathsheba's dying. He knows he's dying. And so David strips naked. He lays on the floor. He doesn't eat. doesn't speak really for a week. The baby dies. I can't imagine the sorrow and the anguish. And do you know what David does when he gets word that that infant has died, his son has died? It says he got up and he went and he worshiped God. And then he ate. That's worship and joy. Not marked by circumstances, but the gospel working in us. Listen, church, if we lived this way, people would notice this. Like if everything is falling apart, but somehow we're standing secure, somehow we're, we, we maintain joy, our trust isn't shaken, we're not overcome, That's a different kind of life. This is what the gospel does. It adjusts our vision. It's applied in trust. It arrives at worship and joy. And then fourthly, the crescendo, the gospel assures our future. David says in verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's that's hell. You will not abandon my soul to hell. Or let your Holy One see corruption. David knows that his future is secure. And the way that he knows that is because he knows that God will not let his Holy One see corruption. See, there were some who thought that David was talking about himself. That when David says, You will not let my soul be abandoned to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, that David's saying that God won't let that happen to him. But that's not the case, is it? Because guess what happened when David died? He was buried and his body saw corruption. It's still there. But Jesus is not. Jesus is the Holy One. Jesus is the one whom God did not let see Corruption. Jesus is the one whom there was not enough time to pass in the grave for decomposition to take place. The three days, that's it. There's no corruption there. The Holy One has not seen corruption. And because He didn't see corruption, our souls will not be delivered over to hell. Our future is secure. This is Job in the middle of unthinkable sorrows. Say, for I know my Redeemer lives and at last will stand upon the earth. I can't not think about your mom. I know it. I know it. I stand secure. The world's falling apart. But you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You did not let your Holy One see corruption. Therefore, the gospel assures our future. Let what happened happen. My future is secure. You make known to me the paths of life. And in your presence there is Fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. That your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That in the end, while we have joy in this life, or, you know, this is verse 9, therefore my heart is, is glad. My whole being rejoices. That's not a fullness of joy. But in the end, there is a fullness of joy in His presence. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now I I thought about this phrase, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And like I I think I I, I used to probably would read that and think, man, it's gonna be great in heaven, isn't it? We're gonna have mansions and we'll have all the food we could ever want. And 
I'll, I'll probably have a Porsche, and it'll be fantastic. Well, that's what we think about, these pleasures forevermore, right? But David says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So let me ask you a question. Not what, but who is at his right hand? It is Jesus who is our pleasure forevermore. It is in Jesus that there is fullness of joy. It is Jesus who is the crown of heaven. It is Jesus who is the fulfillment of the gospel. It is Jesus who produces a fullness of joy. It is all about Jesus. From the start to the finish, as the gospel works in us to adjust our vision, as the gospel works in us to be applied in truth, as the gospel works in us to bring us to worship and to joy, as the gospel works in us so that in the future we stand face to face with him. It is Jesus who works from the beginning to the end. And if God has proven himself faithful and good in this life, and Jesus has shown himself to be faithful and good in this life, how much better will the next life be? That's David's point. All of this, all of this security, all of this joy is found Because you did not let your Holy One see corruption. The gospel works in us to bring joy, regardless of the circumstances. That's what we see in David's life. And that is, by God's grace, hopefully, what we see in ours. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.